John chapter 17, we begin in verse 1. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 10. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to the words of verse 3, where we read these words of Christ, words being prayed to his Father. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. We've embarked on a series of messages that I've entitled, Bridging the Gap. The idea behind this series of messages is to admonish and encourage Christians to bridge the gap between hearing the word and doing the word. I'm borrowing somewhat from a book written by Paul Tripp entitled, Do You Believe? Dr. Tripp wrote this book because of his recognition that there are many that profess to be Christians who can talk the talk, so to speak. In other words, they can discuss and debate many topics of theology. They may appear to be very orthodox in their theology, and they can express their orthodoxy quite impressively. But when it comes to their lives, there is a great gap between what they say and what they do. They fail, in other words, to live their theology. 
Dr. Tripp cites examples in the introduction of his book, and he's not the only one to do this. He cites examples of those who speak eloquently of the grace of God, but in their lives they're graceless. They can speak of the doctrines of forgiveness, but they themselves are anything but forgiving. I believe this kind of situation is much more widespread than what we might acknowledge. And so it becomes us to make sure that we don't fall into the same category of those that are hearers only, but are not doers of the word. I've been keeping my eye open for verses in Scripture that address the matter of being doers and not hearers only, and I'm somewhat surprised to see that those verses are kind of scattered throughout Scripture. The most well-known of them, I suppose, would be what you find in James chapter 1, verse 22, where the matter is expressed very succinctly and very directly when we're told, But be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Oh, deception can take place under the circumstance implied in this verse. When you hear but don't do, the potential is there for self-deception. And the deception pertains to what your status is before God. Christ himself chose to conclude his Sermon on the Mount by emphasizing the same thing. So we read his words in Matthew 7 and verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. That's the way Christ concludes his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, hear what I said and do what I say. And if you'll do that, you can withstand all the winds of trial and tribulation that this world will fling at you. Uh, but if you're not so impacted by the words that I've spoken to you uh, and do them not, you're, you're like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand, and of course that house falls. Now what I want to do over the course of these studies is to follow a pattern that Dr. Tripp gives us in his book, and that pattern is very simple. He deals with 12 different basic doctrines of the faith, and he devotes a chapter, usually a somewhat brief chapter, to expounding the doctrine and then he devotes a much larger chapter to how the doctrine he's just expounded should play out in the way we live. Okay, so that's pretty simple. We've covered already the first doctrine, which is the doctrine of Scripture. Okay, what do you believe about Scripture? Do you take it to be the verbally inspired and inerrant word of God? 
If you do, then your Bible will be your most prized possession. It'll be, in a sense, that pearl of great price that is worth selling everything else to possess. And you'll treat it accordingly by reading it, by studying it, by committing portions of it to memory, and most especially by living by it. Well, today I want to address the next doctrine that Dr. Tripp covers, which is the doctrine of God. Okay, he moves from the doctrine of Scripture to the doctrine of God. I think he says in his introduction that there's no particular order uh, in the way he covers these doctrines. All of them are important, and obviously the doctrine of God is very important. And so if I could state the matter a little bit crudely this morning, it would go like this. How do you do God? Okay, and not just be a hearer only when it comes to God. Perhaps a better way to put the matter would be like this. How do you bridge the gap between knowing about God and actually knowing God? There's the gap. How do you bridge it between knowing about God? And there are many that do. Know all about him. And yet when it comes to knowledge of God, they are woefully ignorant. How do you bridge the gap between knowing about God and actually knowing God? Let's think first of all on the importance of the matter. Okay? In our text this morning, which is in the context of Christ's high priestly prayer, we find in verse 3 what arguably could be called a definition of eternal life. What does eternal life mean? Listen to what Christ says. And this is life eternal. Okay, that kind of sets the stage for what he's going to say next, doesn't it? It sets the stage for a definition, for a description, if you will, of what eternal life is. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is to know God, in other words. And what's in view here is a personal knowledge of God and of Christ. Christ is not speaking about theoretical knowledge merely, but he's speaking of personal knowledge. This is what the Puritan sometimes referred to as an experimental or an experiential knowledge of God. In the King James Study Bible, there is this comment on John 17 and verse 3. It reads like this, Christ confers a spiritual, experiential knowledge of God that involves communion with himself in everlasting life. Okay? In that same study Bible, there's actually an article entitled Experiential Knowledge. 
Having read it, I must say it's probably more challenging to preachers than it is to uh, everyone else because he gives four different um, headings in which the preaching of Christ, the experiential preaching of Christ can be gauged. But if you have that King James Study Bible, I commend it to you. You'll find it right in John 17, one of those in-text uh, articles on experiential knowledge. Let me read for you just a portion of that article. This sounds uh, very much like Joel Beakey. I suspect he's the author of this article. And the author writes, The Reformers and Puritans loved to preach on John 17, 3. They understood that the word know, as used in this context, meant an intimate kind of knowledge that involved a deeply personal and abiding relationship with God in Christ Jesus. They were fond of calling this an experimental knowledge. Today we more commonly speak of it as experiential knowledge. The verb can mean to find or know by experience, thus leading to the word experientia, a Latin word, meaning knowledge gained by experiment. John Calvin used the terms interchangeably since both words indicate the need for measuring experienced knowledge against the touchstone of Scripture. Experiential knowledge addresses the vital matter of how a Christian experiences the truth of biblical doctrine in his life. He experiences the truth of biblical doctrine. He not merely knows it in academic fashion. There is an experience called for here. Interesting to note that this matter that is referred to in this comment from the study Bible is said to be a vital matter. And it is indeed a vital matter because this is, as I said a moment ago, how Christ defines eternal life. Eternal life is to know God personally, intimately, and spiritually. <coughs> I remarked on this verse a number of times that the meaning of the phrase eternal life is not merely a reference to life that lasts forever, it obviously includes that meaning, but it means more than that. The phrase eternal life in John 17, 3 refers to a quality of life and not just the duration of life. The highest quality of living that a creature of God can know is knowing God and knowing Christ. Man, you see, was originally created to know such intimate and personal communion with God. You will know from man's original creation, as we have the record of that in the early chapters of Genesis, that it was man's regular practice and privilege to walk with God in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden before he tragically fell into sin. 
You recall the account in Genesis chapter 3. It's in the context of man's fall, but it makes reference to God walking uh, in the cool of the day in the garden. He is there to obviously keep appointment with Adam and Eve, whom he had just created for that very purpose. But now because of their fallen condition, they are hiding from God rather than stepping forth to commune with God. But the point here is that man was created for that purpose of walking with God and communing with him uh, in in the way that you might commune with uh, anyone on a personal level. The fall of man into sin tragically brought an end to that intimate communion. In describing the misery of the state into which man fell, our shorter catechism, question 19, says this, All mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. He lost communion with God. That's what brings him into into an estate of misery. That is a part of the misery of man's sinful estate. He no longer communes with God the way he was created to. You begin to see what I mean, I hope, and what the comment in that King James Study Bible means when it refers to experiential knowledge as a vital matter. It is they that know God in the manner I've just described that are truly saved, you see. These are the ones that are given eternal life. It's not sufficient to merely know about God. Salvation was never meant to simply impart to men information about God. I'm afraid that hell will be filled with many that know about God. And their knowledge may be true and accurate. And perhaps they've even given some sort of intellectual assent to the accuracy of their knowledge. That's not salvation. You've heard it said, no doubt, that Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship. I'm not entirely comfortable with that statement, but I do get the point of it, I think. I sometimes think that the statement is overused and may even be abused. But on the other hand, as I say, it does convey a measure of truth. This is life eternal, Christ says, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Now I should point out here, that even though mankind lost communion with God by his fall into sin, this does not mean that the knowledge of God was completely erased from man's experience. Paul makes this very clear in Romans chapter 1, that even in his fallen state, sinners have a knowledge of God. And their knowledge is not merely theory. 
Listen to the words of Romans 1, verses 19 and 20. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Sinful man does possess an intuitive sense of the existence of God. At the end of the day, every atheist is a liar. He knows in the depth of his heart the truth that God is. But in his rebellious condition, it is his continual practice to suppress that knowledge. Paul makes that plain in an earlier statement in Romans chapter 1. He knows, but he tries to suppress the knowledge. If he could, he would throw out even that intuitive knowledge that he has. He prefers to live in a world of make-believe, to live as if God does not exist, but he knows in his heart that he does. He also knows in his heart that he's accountable to him. Read the, the end of Romans chapter 1. Paul makes that point. And when you know these things, you know, this can really become a test as to the validity of your profession of faith. Do you find yourself suppressing the knowledge of God? Or is it your heart's desire to increase that knowledge? Or to put it another way, to borrow from the words of the hymn, do you walk with the Lord in the light of his word and know a glory that he sheds on your way? While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. The idea, you know, of godliness ties into this vital matter of knowing God. Ungodliness is not always what some people take it to be. We may general think, generally think that a person who is ungodly is one who lives a life of sin. His lifestyle may be perverse and immoral. His language may be filthy. His habits may be vile. He may flaunt his sin before others as one who lives for sin and for the pleasures of the flesh. An ungodly person, however, may for whatever reasons appear before others to be morally upright. You can be morally upright, you see, and still be ungodly. There are those that know and appreciate the damage that sin can do to a man's life in wrecking a man's life, and so not desiring their own lives to be wrecked, they adopt lifestyles of clean living. A person may live that way, I'm saying, and can still be ungodly. A godly person, on the other hand, and this is the difference between the two, a godly person lives his life with reference to God. God is in his thoughts throughout the day. What he does, he does with an aim of glorifying God and enjoying God because he walks with God throughout the course of the day. 
in all that he does. And so the matter of knowing God or just knowing about God is a matter of vital importance, and it leads me to ask the question, do you know God and know Christ this morning? Salvation is meant to bring you into an experiential knowledge of God and Christ. Do you know him more than merely in theory? Oh, may God give us all the grace to search our hearts with such a question. And I'll go a step further. Your willingness to examine your heart in that matter may be evidence of grace in your life. Those that are pretty sure that they don't know God in a personal and intimate way would want to resist the very idea of examining their hearts. So we're considering the matter of how we can know God and not just know about God. We're wanting to bridge the gap between theoretical knowledge and experiential knowledge because it is a matter of vital importance. Let's consider next, secondly, the way to cultivate this experiential knowledge. The way to cultivate it. And under this point, we can tie this doctrinal heading to the one we considered in our last study. We are currently considering bridging the gap when it comes to the doctrine of God. You may recall in our last study, we considered bridging the gap when it comes to the doctrine of Scripture. And we really need to revert back to the doctrine of Scripture for everything because it's in the Word of God that we do learn our theology on any and every subject. We learn about God in the Scripture. We're careful that when it comes to gaining our knowledge of God, we rely on what God has revealed about Himself and not on what we imagine God is like or how we think He ought to be. There are those that can take the kind of emphasis I'm, stress, uh, I'm stressing this morning and they can abuse it in such a way that they make the knowledge of God purely a subjective type of thing without any objective basis for it. You know, our, our knowledge of God, our experiential knowledge of God has to be tested by the objective truths of the Scripture. And we've got to be very careful that we don't imagine God. We don't invent in our minds an imaginary view of God that is based pretty much on what we think He ought to be like. That's really tantamount to making yourself be God and then uh, giving to God your permission to exist. In our scripture reading earlier in the service, we read from Exodus 34, one of the greatest passages from scripture in which we find God passing by Moses, shielding him in the cleft of the rock while he passes by and declares his name. So we read in Exodus 34 in verse 6, and the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord 
The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. Oh, I'm quite sure we could spend many Lord's days focusing on this revelation of God. Each word in the verse merits careful consideration as we think on God being merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. I'd like to point out from this announcement, and I've done this in the past, this announcement of God's name, that he is also just. And his justice is manifested by the fact that he by no means clears the guilty. This part of the proclamation, you see, poses a challenge to our understanding of him. How can he be merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, and yet not clear the guilty. Well, we have the advantage of being on the other side of the cross when it comes to this proclamation of God's name. You see, the answer to what is only a seeming dilemma is found in Christ. When Christ died on Calvary's cross, God did not clear the guilty. He judged them. If you're a believer in Christ, you could argue he judged you on that occasion when his son died in your place. He judged you, he judged me, and he allowed that judgment to fall on his son, our covenant head, and our substitute. This is why Paul can write to the Romans that God is just and the justifier of those that believe in Jesus. Oh, he's been gracious and long-suffering and merciful and loving. He's also been just. None of these attributes that are declared by God are sacrificed to justice, and justice is not sacrificed to them. Our sins have been judged, and so mercy and justice don't conflict with each other, but work in glorious harmony to the salvation of those that believe in Christ. What a glorious proclamation this is of God's name. What I want you to see now, however, from this proclamation of God's name is the immediate impact that it had on Moses. We read in Exodus 34 and verse 8, And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. This is where the gap is bridged between knowing about God and knowing God. Do you worship God and Christ? Do you find yourself compelled based on what you know about him as he reveals himself. Does that revelation of God in Scripture compel you to worship God and worship Christ? Do you find yourself compelled to bow before him and proclaim from your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? 
This makes church a very important matter, doesn't it? Church can serve a number of purposes, but its primary purpose, and I don't know that this is stressed enough in many churches, that its primary purpose is that we worship and that we worship Christ. And if church is being utilized the right way and is approached spiritually and not just routinely or mechanically, then as you're engaged in the worship of God in Christ, you will grow in your experiential knowledge of him. Oh, how it is my prayer this morning that you meet with him, that you're aware of him, that you hear the voice of his spirit speaking through his word to your heart and you are drawn to him and find yourself compelled and, and grateful and joyful to be able to offer to him praise and thanksgiving and worship. And especially as the word of God is preached, will you grow in grace and in your knowledge of him in the days that preceded the Reformation, it would be accurate, I believe, to say that the knowledge of God and Christ was practically non-existent. The entire worship service during the Dark Ages was conducted in Latin, and if you didn't know Latin, and most people didn't, then you wouldn't know what was even being said. Maybe that was more of a mercy. You might not want to know what was being said, especially as it contradicted and even blasphemed God's name. In those days, worshipers were mere spectators more than they were participators in worship. And there was a certain aura about the whole thing. Uh, the majestic cathedrals and the priest's voice echoing in the echo chamber. Oh, it all was very effective in creating an effect, an impact, I suppose. But when the Reformation came, there was an emphasis placed on the preaching of God's word once again. And it was and is through the preaching of God's word that God is manifested to his people. I love the way this is stated in the opening verses of Titus. Listen to these words from Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Did you catch that part? He hath in due times manifested his word through preaching. God's word is manifested, or in other words, God himself becomes known to the hearts of those who gather to worship him through the preaching of his word. When you know that, when you appreciate that, boy, that really can bring church into much sharper focus 
The purpose behind a sermon is not merely to issue a lecture in which the lecturer imparts information about God. No, this is a spiritual exercise, and listening to God's Word is a spiritual exercise in which God manifests Himself through His Word to each and every heart. This is what makes gathering in the Lord's house on the Lord's day, in the Lord's name, so important. And I might add here, this is one of the reasons that we meet in the middle of the week for prayer meeting. That when it comes to Wednesday, it's a good time to begin to focus on the Lord's day as it is on the horizon. And none of this is automatic. It is a means of grace, and it has to be empowered by God, which means that among the things we pray for when we gather in the middle of the week is, Lord, make thy word effectual when it's preached on thy day. Help me, Lord, to come with heart prepared to hear and to behold God manifesting himself to me. I believe it would be correct to say that the worship of God and Christ in his house on his day becomes a means through which we come to know him more intimately, more clearly, and more fully. Church should be serving that purpose. Oh, I sure hope that it is. Because if we're doing anything and everything else, and not accomplishing that, then our meetings really are in vain. Now, it's not only through church, of course, that we cultivate our experiential knowledge of God and Christ. We meet with him personally, privately, through the use of his word and time in prayer. This is why prayer and Bible reading are regarded as means of grace, it's because they become the means through which we enter into communion with God. And if you know and appreciate that the Bible and time in prayer are God's means of communion with you, then you'll know how best to approach your time in God's Word. Look at that time as a time when you don't merely read and reread the Bible and review the content or the stories of the Bible in your mind. Look at those times of Bible reading and prayer as times when you seek Christ and you enter into fellowship with Him. It's a spiritual exercise, not merely an academic one. The Bible, you see, as well as time in prayer and time in worship, whether it be private worship or family worship or corporate worship in the church, these things are all means to an end, the end being that you enter into the presence of Christ and you experience him. You enter into communion, which is a word that simply means fellowship with him. So how do you bridge the gap between knowing about God and actually knowing Him? You bridge the gap by utilizing the means that God has provided 
for bridging the gap. You bridge the gap by time in church, engaged in worship, as well as time in God's Word, privately, as a family, in prayer, on a daily basis, could I say. I very strongly believe that when Christ taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, he had more in mind than just our material provision. I have no problem saying, yes, uh, that comes under that petition, but I think there's more to it than just our material provision. Lord, give me my spiritual provision today. Give me my portion in Christ today. After all, he is the bread of life. Give me my portion in him today. Let me commune with thee today, dear Lord. Now let me mention one more thing in connection with bridging the gap between knowing about God and knowing God. I would conclude this morning, thirdly, with a word of caution. A word of caution. Uh, lest I be too discouraging to anyone here this morning, it would be very easy to say, Oh, preacher, I hear what you're saying this morning. And based on the way you've laid it out, it makes me wonder if I know God at all. That's not a bad way for you to think, by the way. But the thing that I want you to keep in mind is that we do, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, we do see through a glass darkly. And our fellowship with God and with Christ right now is nowhere near what it's going to be when Christ returns and redemption is consummated and we shall see him and we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. We see through a glass darkly, which means that there is a strain involved when it comes to our knowledge of God. And take note that though we see through a glass darkly, as he writes in that text, 1 Corinthians 13, we do nevertheless see. So there is some knowledge of God there. And by knowledge, I mean the experiential knowledge now that I've been describing. There is a measure of it there. It may not exist to the degree that you would want it to. You know what? That will never be the case. You will never have so much of God that you say, I've arrived. This is it. I, I, I know him comprehensively uh, in my experience as well as in theory. Now, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul himself in Philippians chapter 3. Let me read some familiar verses, no doubt, that uh, pose to us the challenge of knowing God. Paul writes, Philippians 3 and verse 8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And let me just say here again that uh, the particular knowledge in view here is the knowledge that I've been describing. 
Paul saw that as being so valuable, he would count all things but loss in order to gain it, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. May have more to say about that this afternoon. And be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And then listen to verse 10 now, to this longing expression that Paul sets forth, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that nobody knew Christ as fully and as intimately as the Apostle Paul knew him. Having met with him on the Damascus Road when he caught that revelation of blinding glory. Having entered into communion with him when he's called apart for some three-year period in preparation for what would be his ministry to the Gentiles. Oh, he knew him. He knew Christ and he knew him well. But the thing I want to impress upon you know now is that he wasn't satisfied with the degree to which he knew him, he knew that there was so much more of Christ that could be known, that could be experienced. And this is why I caution you with this word. Don't ever think that you've arrived and don't ever be satisfied or complacent with the level at which you find yourself in the knowledge of God in Christ. You can know more. And you should know more. And so let's assure ourselves and admonish ourselves to be constantly applying ourselves to pursuing the knowledge of God and Christ. Peter exhorts us in the very end of his second epistle to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's how we bridge the gap between knowing about God and actually knowing God. Oh, may we be enabled in the power of his spirit with the use of his word to do just that. Let's close then in prayer. Let's all pray. Oh, Lord, as we bow in thy presence, we thank thee for the power of the gospel. We thank thee, Lord, that we have regained a lost privilege through the gospel of knowing Christ, walking with him in the light of his word, entering into communion with him. Lord, help us to establish and maintain 
daily communion with the Savior that we know and love. And may it please thee, O Lord, to lighten that darkened glass somewhat for us, that we might behold thee in thy glory to an even greater degree. Help us, O Lord, to approach church the right way with that aim in mind. Help us to approach our Bible study and time in the Word with that aim in mind of entering more fully and more intimately into the relationship that we thankfully have with God through Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.